WMRA News. I'm Bob Levicky. As COVID-19 cases again spike in Virginia, Governor Northam issues an order that should increase the number of hospital beds. We launch a series on the problems with Charlottesville city government, and we have a look at Virginia's long, complicated history with tobacco. This is the WMRA Daily for Tuesday, January 11th. With COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations spiking, Governor Ralph Northam announced a new emergency order Monday. Virginia Public Radio's David Seidel explains what the order does and does not do. Virginia recorded more than 25,000 new COVID-19 cases Saturday, and hospitalizations are at record levels too. Case numbers are high, yes, and that's a reason for concern, but not a reason for panic. In his final COVID-19 briefing during his term as governor, Ralph Northam said that despite the surge of new infections, the severity is dramatically reduced for those who are fully vaccinated and boosted. But the sheer volume of cases is straining the health care system. That's why Northam issued a new emergency declaration. This isn't restrictive in any way. Instead, it relaxes some regulations to help get care to the people more quickly. In fact, modeling from UVA's Biocomplexity Institute suggests that we'll see this wave of hospitalizations peak in early February. That is why this emergency order will last for 30 days. The declaration is designed to increase hospital bed capacity and staffing flexibility, though Northam will leave office Saturday. An aide to Glenn Youngkin said the incoming governor supports tailored executive action to remove staffing barriers and provide flexibility. I'm David Seidel. Officials with Virginia's court system are asking a federal judge in Richmond to dismiss a lawsuit over Virginia's limited public access to court records, VPM's Whitney Evans reports. The national legal publication Courthouse News Service sued the executive secretary of the Supreme Court of Virginia and the clerk of the circuit court for Prince William County in September. The lawsuit argues the public shouldn't have to travel in person to access civil court records. Right now, only lawyers are allowed to get those filings remotely. It alleges the policy is unconstitutional. Attorneys for the state say they're not preventing access, and putting the records online would lead to data mining. U.S. District Court Judge Henry Hudson asked state attorneys if the filings are already available to the public, why can't they be posted online? Hudson also urged the parties involved to ask the General Assembly to deal with the issue through legislation. He's not yet announced whether he'll dismiss the complaint. Whitney Evans reporting. The now empty land that once housed the giant statue and pedestal of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in Richmond is now owned by the city. The property was gifted from the Commonwealth of Virginia to the city of Richmond at Monday night's city council meeting. Officials recommend the land be used as public open space in accordance with the Richmond 300 master plan. Richmond BizSense reports that the almost one acre of space is estimated to be worth more than $1 million. On Monday, Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin announced John Little as his nominee for Virginia's next Secretary of Health and Human Resources. Little recently served as the president of Magellan of Virginia, which administers behavioral health services for people enrolled in Virginia Medicaid. Little has also worked in federal and state government, including as Virginia's Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Resources. Youngkin has promised changes regarding how Virginia handles COVID-19. He does not support vaccine or mask mandates, although he has advocated for Virginians to get vaccinated and receive 
boosters as appropriate. Youngkin's cabinet nominees are subject to approval by the General Assembly. On Saturday, Governor Ralph Northam will return to his medical practice in Norfolk. The pediatric neurologist and longtime lawmaker spearheaded efforts to expand Medicaid access and to abolish the death penalty. Elected governor in 2017, Northam recently shared his take on what happened during the 2021 election when Republicans won control of Virginia's executive branch and House of Delegates. Perhaps, and I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback, it wasn't my campaign. I wasn't running this year, but I don't think those that ran on the Democratic ticket talked enough about what we've been able to accomplish. Glenn Youngkin will be sworn in on Saturday. Oh, and Virginia's General Assembly gavels in today. Lawmakers will discuss a variety of ways to fund education. Virginia Public Radio's Michael Pope reports. Virginia has an Education Improvement Scholarship tax credit that lets people or businesses get a break on their taxes if they make donations to foundations that provide scholarships. Republican Senator Frank Ruff of Mecklenburg County says these scholarships help students in need. He has a bill that would expand the use of these tax credits. We've got people that want to go to community colleges and want to four-year colleges and don't know how to get from here to there. If we start with them early enough, we can make sure that they have good grades and have a good work ethic. Critics say these tax credits are a backdoor way of using state resources to fund education at private institutions. Chris Wadica at the Commonwealth Institute says adding more tax credits reduces revenue that would otherwise be available for public education. A lot of these tax credits are not routinely examined as part of the annual budget process. So it's a kind of spending that happens through the tax code that doesn't really get evaluated on a regular basis. Unlike members of Congress, members of the General Assembly are required to balance the books instead of relying on deficit spending, at least for the most part. That process has already started with outgoing Governor Ralph Northam sending his budget proposal to lawmakers. They'll start considering it before Glenn Youngkin is inaugurated this weekend. Uh, Michael Pope. Last week, Charlottesville's city council held its first meeting of the new year and selected a new mayor. Since the deadly Unite the Right rally in 2017, five city managers have quit or been fired, and a dozen other people tasked with day-to-day affairs have left. In the first report in a series from WMRA and Virginia Public Radio, Sandy Hausman reports on how this crisis unfolded. In the aftermath of Unite the Right, some Charlottesville residents were furious. They felt the city and its police force had failed to protect them, and their anger was evident at city council meetings where elected officials like Kristen Sekas presided over public comment. It was pandemonium when Jason Kessler, who helped organize the rally, stepped up. I'm here for white people because they need civil rights right now. Mr. Kessler, you're getting dangerously close to hate speech, which is... Standing up for white people is not hate speech. In your mind it is. Critics from the black community also took their turn, protesting a vote to rename Lee Park. Council favored calling it Emancipation Park, but resident Mary Carey told Segas that African Americans were not really emancipated and circulated a petition demanding another change to the name. Charlottesville needs to take that name of that park away. I got a couple judges that's going to look at this petition. I'm not done. I got a couple judges that's going to look at this petition after the holidays, and they will decide 
Your time is up. What that part should be, stay there. That name should stay there. Your time or that is name, up. your time's up too. For months, people showed up to shout during council meetings that lasted for hours. Mayor Mike Signer says it was impossible to get basic things done, and he claims voices of moderation were discouraged from taking part in meetings. People in the community who are just kind of interested in the work that city council does, they're not going to come to the meetings because they're being attacked, they're too loud, they go on too long. Former Mayor David Toscano, who served 12 years on the board beginning in 1990, says social media made matters worse. Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok did not exist when I was on the city council. And I think that did have an effect of moderating things a little bit more because not everything you said right away was out there on the web for people to criticize in real time. Some thought the situation might improve if council elected a mayor who was black. Member Wes Bellamy proposed a newcomer, Nakia Walker, be given the job. If we truly believe that we're about equity, and I do believe that optics matter, then we need to vote for Ms. Walker and let's start changing the page and turning the page. But Walker quickly sparked controversy, going public with information discussed during closed-door meetings and expensing gift cards that she gave her supporters if they attended city council meetings. Community members come up with solutions that people who are making dollars $100,000, $200,000 can't come up with, and I give them $25 gift cards for every hour that they spend helping us heal this community. Walker learned she was under investigation by the local prosecutor and lashed out at her colleagues for allegedly reporting the possible abuse of public funds. If you thought I was doing something wrong, why didn't you just tell me? You might not want to hear what I have to say. I'm persistent. You might want me to shut up, but I'm not aggressive. None of them can ever say that I've yelled, cursed at them. Heather can say it. But, and Lloyd, Mike Signer, there are a few people that can say that. Walker decided not to seek re-election. Two new members replaced her and Heather Hill. We'll meet them and examine two other factors that could, at last, bring a greater sense of calm to Charlottesville in our next report. I'm Sandy Hausman. Finally today, Virginia has a long and complicated history with tobacco, and that includes one of the state's biggest companies. Robin Farzad, host of the Full Disclosure podcast, and Virginia Public Radio's Craig Wright have more on that. Altria Group Incorporated, formerly known as Philip Morris Companies until it rebranded itself, and based in Henrico County just outside of Richmond, was once ranked 11 by Forbes, but today it's ranked 138th. Robin, can you provide an explanation behind this decline? Well, let's clarify first. Altria is merely the renamed Philip Morris USA, mm-hmm. uh, this company, Philip Morris broke up into USA and international. International tends to do more nefarious things, but uh, Philip Morris USA remains by far the the nation's biggest tobacco company. It owns Marlboro, which is the number one brand. It has the most pricing power, and over the long run, this business has been one of the most profitable. I think uh, the stock has been one of the best performing in the 20th century, and it's thrown off so much cash. Shareholders have smoked the market, <laughs> part of the expression, but. There's always been regulatory overhang, and for years, fewer uh, people have been smoking. The share of adult cigarette users is down to the low teens versus, you know, 21% as recently as 2005. And we know that uh, plummeting rate of teenage smokers has not replenished these ranks. 
It seems that the industry is also constantly being hard hit by ever-increasing taxation. Is that fair or unfair in your, in your estimation? The states are really addicted to cigarette taxes um, ever since the master settlement in the late 90s uh, with the tobacco industry. And you see a burgeoning trade. I mean, here in Richmond, we're known as the hub of uh, the cigarette smuggling business. You have people who come here and buy cigarettes and partake in that kind of low tax arbitrage and go to places like Massachusetts or New York or California, where they are taxed excessively far higher than they are in places like Virginia or Kentucky. And that has been shown to further snuff out the smoking rate where you make these these premium brands prohibitive that people first try discount brands and then they try to go cold turkey. In an effort to stay with the times, vaping seemed like it might have been a viable alternative. As a matter of fact, Altria bought in for a 35% stake in the San Francisco-based Juul. But Robin, that doesn't seem to have played out exactly the way they've wanted. No, indeed, almost immediately they regretted shelling out nearly $12 billion for that stake. I mean, for a while it seemed like Juul was the biggest disruption to the cigarette biz. They called it a killer app. It used nicotine salts and a kind of a freebase hit that you would get through something that looked like a USB thumb drive. And it was helping chain smokers quit left and right. But it got enormous pushback from parents and PTAs as it started invading middle schools and high schools. And we were learning that jury rigged Juuls were landing some users in IC use with lung damage. And so now it's estimated that Altria's stake in this this vaping upstart is worth less than $2 billion from, again, $12 billion. You used the word burgeoning a little bit earlier, and there is a burgeoning marijuana market. Could that be part of Altria's future? No doubt. Uh, Altria shelled out about $2 billion in late 2018 for about a half stake in Kronos Group, one of the first major multinational cannabis firms. I mean, this has always been a business of diversification. They've gone in and out of foods, wines, beer, other things. Uh, the market is, says, you know, Philip Morris, you should be a pure play. No, you should take the uh, huge cash flows and invest in other businesses just out of self-preservation. But we know as as states kind of turn to this as a cash flow source and you see the pace of legalization sweeping across the country, it would behoove a company like Altria that already has distribution in all these convenience stores and drug stores and supermarkets to have a foot in the marijuana business. We've been speaking with Robin Farzad. He is, of course, the host of Public Radio's podcast, Full Disclosure, author and regular contributor to NPR. I'm Craig Wright. Robin, we'll look forward to speaking with you again next week. It is my pleasure, Craig. For WMRA News, I'm Bob Levicky. Thanks for listening. Stay safely connected, and I hope you enjoy your Tuesday.